0: PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello, and welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast. This is episode 69. And it was a joint podcast, a chat episode with James Bolton of the Queens of England podcast. It's a fantastic podcast. If you haven't discovered it yet, you totally should check it out. He's moving into the Tudor period now. And so we had a little chat about Catherine of Aragon. And it was really great to speak with him. And I really appreciated that. So this is our conversation about Catherine. We mostly agree so it might be a bit boring just listening to us agree with each other, but it was a fun chat. Just a quick reminder that this show is a proud member of the Agora Podcast Network. For more information on the Agora Podcast Network, check out com. You can go there to discover all the great podcasts that are part of the network and find a new favorite. And also all of the links to things we talk about, links to James's podcast, everything like that are available on englandcast.com, where you can also sign up for my mailing list, which gets you book giveaways and all kinds of fun things like that. So do go to englandcast.com and check that out. So now we'll jump right into the conversation with James. And we started in a very British way by talking about the weather.
1: Cool, so I'm uh, here with uh, Heather Tesco of the Renaissance English History Podcast. Heather, how are you today?
0: You know, I am great. How are you doing, James?
1: Uh, no, it could be better. It's all grey outside. Damp, wet, English.
0: <laughs> well, it's it's snowing here in, in Pennsylvania. I'm in Pennsylvania right now with my family and, and it's snowing, so um, we can both complain about being cold.
1: Yeah, well, the thing is, it's never cold when it rains here. It's warmer. It's it's when the weather's beautiful, it freezes your butt off. It's it's never it's never great. It's always it's always something to complain about.
0: hmm Yeah. Well, that's very British, isn't it?
1: Yeah. So after we've got the nice British introduction of talking about the weather out of the way, <laughs> uh, let's move on to the history.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, poor Catherine of Aragon, having so, been raised in Spain, she probably would have been complaining about the weather quite a lot as well, huh?
1: Yeah, well, you. God, you've already got me on a sidetrack. One of the um, I used to study Scottish history, and the number of times you get a foreign princess sent over to Scotland, and she dies within eight, like eight weeks. I'm sure just because of the weather. Um, didn't so much get that in England, but as you as you say, we're here to talk about Catherine. Um, as my listeners will know, i just spent a exorbitant amount of time talking about her, more time than I have talked about anyone in my entire life, uh, and I I try to keep. My own sort of views, my own sort of opinions, my own wild theories of um, of the women that I cover—all the queens—sort of to myself. I try not to be too crazy, um, but I thought now's the time to be crazy. And who better to go be crazy with than uh, the foremost podcasting expert in Tudor history? So, I suppose my first question is: um, What do you what do you think about? Government? Is she, what does she rank for you in uh, in Tudor Queen lore?
0: Well, where does she rank? You know, I think she's she's not my favorite of Henry's wives. I have to I have to say, um, Anne of Cleves is my absolute favorite of Henry's wives. But um, in terms of who she is, you know, I think I think you mentioned it one time. There's this, I think, with Anne Boleyn too. There's this idea of either villainizing her or making her into a victim of some sort like she was this hot-headed person who, you know, should have given in but poor her um or at the same time turning her into this like feminist hero. And I think we look at these spectrums or you know, we put her on either side of things. People either say, "Oh, you know, poor Catherine, she was sent away to this cold, damp castle in Norfolk or wherever she was sent or or they say, you know, yeah, she was a warrior, go her. And I think she's probably somewhere like all of us, like all all humans, we, we have those sides to us, but if you really look at us, we're somewhere in the middle there. So, you know, I think she would have been deeply affected by her Lack of being able to have a son, which you know was uh, the main duty that she was brought up to know she was you know meant to do. Which she she loved her daughter and wanted to protect her daughter and was looking out for her daughter. And you know, having grown up at the Alhambra in the shadow of this warrior queen for a mother, and then everything she went through during the time after Arthur's death before she married Henry. You know, I think all of these very traumatic sorts of events. Um, would have really shaped who she was and made her someone who, you know, was, was both very strong and perhaps prone to seeing herself as a victim. Um, and I don't know that that's necessarily, you know, either side of her more than the other. Does that make sense? Yeah,
1: I, I does definitely to me. I think you've sort of um, said a lot of the reasons why I find her interesting. For me, it's... I mean I've only covered her so far and you never I never really find I have a true opinion or truly know a lot of these queens that I cover until I've actually gone gone into the library and read read all the books um, so I haven't got a fully formed opinion of any otherwise except maybe Anne Boleyn um, but for me she's the one she seems like a normal queen to me you know she you know she reigned for 20 years she she does all the normal queenly things you know and she does them very well. I think in my second episode on her I said something along the lines of if if it wasn't for the whole if it wasn't for a massive catalogue, this perfect storm of four or five things that all piled up at the same time, um she you know, she would have been a successful queen, you know, even with the problems and we'll get into it later on, the problems of uh, of giving birth. But even without that, I mean we've had England has had bad I don't know using the word barren, but queens who have not you did not have children, or queens that only gave daughters. Now that has happened before, and that hasn't necessarily led to you know divorce to everything that happened. Um, you, you the other queens, it's difficult to tell because most of them only reigned for a very short amount of time. You know, even Anne Boleyn was only queen for like what about three years? Um, I mean, you sort of count. You kind of count about the nine years before that sort of inning bit as well, but you know, Catherine was queen for over half of Henry's reign, just about, uh, even if, even if you stop it at when she effectively stopped being queen, if you don't count it from the divorce, I mean, if you count it even from the mid late 1520s, it's still a lot. Um, not even sure if i said anything there. i think i just did a bit of a splurge of consciousness <laughs> but uh, i mean i don't i don't want to like rank them yet because i think i'm going to sort of do a big episode at the end where i'm going to do that but yeah. so um you mentioned um the family growing up in the alhambra having isabella of uh, castile for a mother and so she and mentioned that she uh, grew up in a in a nice warm place so Unlike most of Henry's queens barring Anne of Cleves, they came they were domestic, which is very unusual, but actually in the previous decades the sort of marrying domestically became a bit more common. What do you think, being Spanish, being from this incredible family of, of these two incredibly strong monarchs in Ferdinand and Isabella, how do you think that affected her when she came to England and had to deal with the various problems she had with with her first husband dying, being sort of left to rot by Henry VII. Do you think that had a big influence or do you think it was just kind of how any queen would have have reacted? Um,
0: I'm not... I think it affected her later with um, protecting her daughter's rights. To me, that seems like... You know, it's interesting that both her and her sister Juana had to, well, Juana was put aside and, you know, wasn't allowed to get her inheritance. Um, And it's, it's interesting to me that both of these daughters had a mother who was an independent sovereign, you know, reigned on her own, not through her husband. And they would have seen that it wasn't that big of a deal for a woman to reign on her own it, it wasn't like I, in England it was different because as you as you said when we were chatting that you know the only time this was tried before was with Matilda and Stephen and it all went very very badly um when Matilda was trying to to press her claim in what the 12th century um but you know it's it's interesting for me seeing how I think for Catherine it wouldn't have been that outrageous to think well okay i haven't given a son but i have you know he has an heir he has mary and she can reign on her own and you know what's the big deal with that so i think that would have probably shaped her having seen her mother successfully reigning on her own and you know more than successfully you know recapturing um spain and you know uniting spain finally and you know expelling the moors and everything like that um and at the same time i think Unlike some of the domestic wives, well, unlike really any of the domestic wives, she was bred to be a queen, so she knew her role, she had a sense of, of her own importance and her own kind of worth as a queen. And, you know, there there was always that sense of, like, being regal. And, and um, it's funny because I – look, my I have this other podcast, Watching the Tudors, where my husband and I rewatch the Tudors and we talk about what was true and what wasn't. And there's all these scenes in the Tudors where, you know, um, Catherine, early on when Anne's first rising, like, says things to her and calls her a whore and all this. I don't think Catherine would have stooped to that level. Catherine was the daughter of Isabella. You know, she's not going to st- – Stoop to making petty conversation with with a lady in waiting like that's just I don't see that very much in her character I, I don't know so to me she was you know very proud and that would have come from being raised with this this warrior personality around her and just realizing that she was bred to be a queen and she was bred differently than, you know, normal people. She was raised to go away from her family and leave her family and go rule another country. And you see that very early on with her stepping into, um, you know, with uh, taking control when Henry was in France and was a 1513 the Battle of Flodden. And, you know, she didn't necessarily lead an army, but she, she was a very successful regent, and he trusted her like that that i i don't think he would have trusted anne boleyn or you know, catherine howard in the same sort of way that was a long answer to a short question what do you think
1: well i think i i didn't when i first went into this i mean like all english um, school children who did history a lot i was of bred on an education of tutors and nazis and so i did <laughs> uh, covered the um catherine and and a lot, and, and all of them, really. And the one thing you don't tend to do in a normal, because, um, like, I think most countries, they tend to be quite um, parochial with their history. They tend to think that they, their countries are in a vacuum, and so you only sort of study English history, and you also only study English history in England. So you think that Catherine of Aragon kind of was born when she came over to England in, uh, I can't remember, about 1501, I think um and so you don't sort of study her well, you know, ha- where she was born how she was born so i found it really interesting um studying that and i mean she you're right she was meant to be a queen um so bred to be a queen you know her mum, mother was a, a regnant queen i think both um uh i i, I tend to go with the, uh, english friends, or juana or, or joanna as i tend to call her uh. was um was a was a regnant ish queen of spain um, she was supposed to be but she was kind of really her husband I think was really in charge and then her, up, I think she had two no two other sisters who were both Queen of Portugal, mm-hmm. I think if I recall, I really should have looked back at my own research are no, right. This, but yeah, you, you, you have this I mean Castile, a bit like England is, is this, I mean Castile's been around for a long time and it isn't quite Spain yet but it's it is kind of this sort of new dynasty in a way, um, but it is this incredibly dignified sort of crown on the up, whereas sort of the Tudors are very much starting from the bottom, mm-hmm. you know, from the very beginning. And you have this incredibly noble family. And and I think that has to... Uh, the word that... I don't think I actually use it. The word I keep thinking of with Catherine is sort of dignified. She has this mm-hmm. dignity. And I think it's interesting what you were saying with sort of her seeing... Anne Boleyn, Anne Boleyn is beneath her, or at least beneath her dignity. And I think it's very that, that kind of sense of honor, that sense of 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 her own place, her own importance, is, is not something it's very easy to identify with. Mm-hmm. This sort of very hierarchical sense of of that, and you know, I called her. I use the word obstinate a lot, which I'm not so, totally wild about because I think it's a little bit. Gendered in a way it's yeah. a bit like using the word bossy yeah uh, no one calls a man bossy okay. um and I think obstinates a bit the same you get the sense of obstinate it's of but she she was a blocker um and it's very easy to get very frustrated with her because you think she just just lost a little bit of that sense of self-importance that regality you might have it might have all worked out well but I definitely think I, I agree with you and it's getting very boring for Alyssa, I'm sure we're both <laughs> agreeing on everything. Uh, she had this um this sense of that she was she was meant to be a queen, she was born to be a queen, and she has this sense from all her from all her family. And then you have this sense of later on, she was the queen. Everyone's you know, everyone agreed she was the queen and then it all All went horribly wrong. And and speaking of all going horribly wrong, I worked. I should—that's an unusually good segue. (laughs) Um, Without wanting to get too graphically into the detail, I want to talk about her virginity,
0: Um, because again, I
1: didn't really want to. (laughs) I I basically there's this when you read the the um, the secondary literature, you know, the books, you find often the main, main the big historians that tend to kind of avoid it because mm-hmm. it's entirely speculative and unknowable. And then you get some more of the popular authors, some of the more readable books sort of either hedge their bets as well, or decide that they're going to go for it and, and have an opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I'm going to ask you to put your neck on the line here. <laughs> um, and don't worry, I'm going to, my neck's right there with you, but I'm going to, okay. you know, you first.
0: Okay. All right. Um, my neck is, <laughs> I I think she was a virgin. Um do you?
1: <laughs> yes, I do. Yeah. Uh, I think it's a, a certain bias
0: well,
1: in that, you know, I, I'm studying it from her perspective, and so it's, you know, I, I, I kind of want to believe her. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I think it also comes from the dignity. I don't think it, it was an untenable position if she had um, been with him, but been, been, been with Arthur in the strongest sense of the word been. <laughs> um, but I, I just don't think it, it was so against her interests to keep arguing yeah. this point yeah. unless you think she was the most stubborn woman in history. Well, I think I, her argument came from this sense of dignity, the sense of she knew she was. And so that, that for me makes me believe her.
0: Yeah. And I, I also, I agree with you there. And also just, you know, the, the things that she said to priests, she was a very devout person. Um, I, I, and, you know, making those kinds of confessions, we, kind of in our 21st century post enlightenment kind of thinking don't put as much credence into you know if somebody says something in confessional. oh well who knows if it's true or not but at that time like that was your eternal soul in peril and uh i love that word peril when i talk about it because it reminds me of like monty python and let me have just a little bit more peril no it's too perilous um i can't say the word peril without without saying that um But, you know, I I feel like I don't think that she would have taken that risk with her soul if it wasn't, you know, I don't think she would have lied about that being as devout as she was. Also, you know, Arthur was was quite sick. I, I don't know, to me, him coming out and boasting in the morning that he'd been to Spain, he was very thirsty because he'd been to Spain the night before. <laughs> I and mean, that's just a, a, you know, that's just what teenagers do that that doesn't say anything. That just means he was boasting. And in fact, that would actually being a pop psychologist of a 16 year old boy, which I have absolutely no experience of. So I really am just talking out of my head here. But it seems to be like, it seems like that might be a little bit more um trying to prove something, and it would actually lean more to in favor of her not having had sex with him because he had to go out and make that boast about about it i you know I don't know then you're really getting deep, but to me i I don't think that that boast he made means anything and and he was quite ill, I don't know that he even you know would have been able to i don't you know i don't know um and also yeah i i just i i, well, just I not buying I, it, I don't know. <laughs>
1: Well, I mean, uh, I, unlike you, have great experience of being a sixteen-year-old boy, okay. uh, and <laughs> I, I didn't entirely agree with you. But I, I, it's—I mean—it's not even that unusual uh, to have marriages not consummated immediately. Uh, you get this with um, uh, Henry and Anne of Cleves as well. Right. You know, they were married for for uh, God, I'm really losing my cred here as a his- history podcaster. It, it was about what about six, nine months. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean i mean he he changed his mind pretty quickly right. but there is at least there is a theory that part of the problem was that he couldn't perform for want of a better word right on the wedding night and obviously he blamed anne of cleves for being being a bit of a munter right and uh, and it not it being his own problem and i think I, I think it's not beyond the realm of possibility that arthur either couldn't perform because of illness or couldn't perform because of didn't want to, or could, or you know, she, or, or something like that. I don't think it's it's not that unusual to be delayed. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Eleanor uh, of Aquitaine, if my memory serves, but um, with her first husband, you get this as well. Uh, you know husbands is not that interested in the whole thing, right? And yeah, uh, Arthur was supposed to have have sex with her, and so he made this boast, um, which appears in a couple of sources, I think. Um, sources aren't contemporary. A lot of our sources are written later on when it becomes in their interest
0: right.
1: um, to say one thing or the other.
0: So we we kind of agree here. We agree on a lot, don't we?
1: I think we read the same book.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you know, have have you but read... It's, it's... the? Um, you know, Alison Weir is doing that, the series, The Six Tudor Queens, where it's historical fiction, but it's Alison Weir, so she knows... A lot. And um, obviously, she is the grandmother of Tudor queens. Um, she Her first book on Catherine of Aragon came out last year. And it was really, really an interesting view of things from Catherine's perspective. And it it wasn't like kind of, quote unquote, normal historical fiction that's just kind of um, romanticized everything. It, it was really based in solid work. It was really interesting. Anyway, I, I don't know if you've read it. It was
1: it's on. It's on my list. I read her um her book on, um, uh, I read her book on like it's called something like Six Wives they're all yeah, Six yeah, yeah. Wives or yeah. something like that. Yeah. Um. So I used her a lot because although I find sometimes she can, she can sort of move away from the cold hard fact into a bit of wild speculation every now and again. She's very very good at. Um, I tend to use her books a lot uh, for. Um, picking out sources because her books are huge, right? And so she likes to list all the sources, and I love, I love to read out a good long <laughs> quote.
0: Um,
1: and she's really useful for that. Uh, but I, I generally find I try not to read too much historical fiction um, outside of outside of work because I spend <laughs> I spend my my actual job and then my podcasting job reading history, and so I, I try mm. to um,
0: mix it up, read a bit.
1: something else. Otherwise, I find I just uh, yeah, I think my fiancé might punch me in the face if I uh, spend all my time just talking about history. <laughs> she's, a, she's more of an art historian.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: So I'm going to ask you uh, another question now, and I'm pretty sure we're going to agree on this one as well.
0: Okay.
1: Uh, Catherine did have uh, one surviving child with Henry, it was Mary, and it's obviously it's a 50-50 shot, more or less, give mm-hmm. or take, that Mary turned out to be a girl uh, and not a son, and she did have um, she had many stillbirths, and then she had one son who lived, I think, for a few hours and then had Henry, Duke of Cornwall, who lived for a little bit longer, but not very long at all, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a few weeks. What do you think would have happened both at the time and sort of now, this is wild speculation now, had, had the Duke of Cornwall or another one of the sons survived? Do you think that the whole Anne Boleyn thing would have even, even happened?
0: No, I don't think it would have do you, do you do you agree i mean i I think you know Henry might have met Anne Boleyn and might have wanted to find another way to put aside his wife, but um you know his whole he would have had to have really thought out a a different method of it his His whole reasoning was you know the Leviticus quote and the fact that he didn't have children, and you know I think this is getting into Henry but I really think that Henry convinced himself of that as time went on. I, I think you know Henry had this this um, tendency to see himself as a victim as well, and um, I, I think that he really—I I don't know that he believed it at first, but I think by the end he 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 really believed that. Um, he tricked himself into thinking it. I, I think um, so. You know, I don't know. I also think you know if Catherine had had a, a son that had lived. She wouldn't have necessarily needed to be as defensive. You know, I think her position was always going to be a little bit mm, insecure until she had that. And she probably knew that, um, that, you know, if she had had a son, maybe she wouldn't have felt the need. Maybe she could have worked something out with Henry. Maybe Henry would have been willing to, even if he put her aside, to recognize the son's rights to rule before i think that i'm really rambling right now i think that part of why she was as stubborn as she was was she was trying to protect mary's rights and if she had had a son um she might not have had to have protected the son's rights as much because that would have just been a given i don't know um i'm I, but i don't think it would have played out the same at all what do you think
1: i uh, i think it's difficult I, the reason why I ask this question is it does seem like a super, super stupid question. But the reason is because, you know, Queen's position is secure by having a healthy son. You know, any anyone who's stayed any period of, of sort of royal history knows, sort of knows that. But the reason why I ask is, and I don't want to talk too much about Anne Boleyn because I want to keep this fairly focused on Catherine, but you have this view that people tend to have of Anne Boleyn, and you get this a lot of the time in TV shows like the Tudors, is... Anne Boleyn's this seductress this unstoppable sexual force of nature that you know Henry never stood a chance once Anne got got her claws into him and I don't particularly like this image because it's rather speaks to a rather unpleasant thing in the male psyche I think mm-hmm. but you know Anne Boleyn, you could you could argue that Anne Boleyn perhaps would not have seen an opportunity to become queen had Catherine not been have you know in the difficult position but she might still have tried her best and there are queens even with sons who fa- found themselves completely sidelined by mistresses mm-hmm. and even and, and the other problems would still have been there you know it wasn't Catherine's position wasn't just hurt by not having a son she was also hurt by the changing diplomatic system on the continent with mm-hmm. You know, Charles repudiating um, their daughter Mary as a wife and then becoming this uh, big scary master of Europe. You still have Anne, you still have that. Right. You still have Woolsey as well, who. But... Was, uh, he wasn't as anti Catherine as, as Catherine thought, but he certainly didn't. He certainly wanted to sideline her. Mm-hmm. So the uh, reason why I ask is do you think it was almost purely the sun issue? That that tipped Henry over.
0: Well, no, I guess my question then is like, even had all that happened, I guess my thinking is, would Catherine have reacted differently if she had had a son whose rights she knew were going to be protected? Because I could see Henry sidelining her and saying like, you know, whatever reason Charles did this, and Woolsey says this, and blah 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 blah, and trying to set her aside, and. I if she knew that her son's rights were going to be protected as the heir, I could see her perhaps having a different reaction than she had. I think a lot of her reaction was protecting Mary. But, you know, I I don't know. What do you think?
1: I think it seems a combination of, of protecting herself as well. Well, not so much herself in terms of her own life. I don't think that actually was so much her concern um but protecting her own position mm-hmm. you know protecting the fact that you know she was married before god uh she was made queen in a, a religious ceremony and so she was kind of protecting that in as much as as much as anything and also protecting her you know mary's legitimacy yeah. but i do think it's it's very easy to say you know if she just had a son everything would in handy dory uh i don't i don't think that is the case i think I think if she'd had a son she I think she probably would have died if she had died at the same time uh, died a queen and died Henry's wife but I don't think she would have been the same queen she was in the in the 1510s mm-hmm. you know ruling England while Henry was abroad you know sending troops to Flodden, um serving serving almost you know alongside the, the actual ambassadors as as her father and then her nephew's representative. And, of course, she did actually serve as an ambassador very early on. And, and so that's... I, I, I think it's... Catherine, I don't think, would have had a particularly great time in the 1520s and 30s, even if she had had one or two sons, I guess is my, my view.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I can see that.
1: Okay, and then uh, finally... Uh, we've of touched upon this a- a- already because all things are connected. I-, I mentioned earlier that I find sometimes Catherine an incredibly frustrating woman because she is so up. She's so set. She's the immovable object. She won't give in on anything. She won't compromise. And... You know, it did hurt her, very much it hurt her long term. If she had given in to Henry's demands, you know, uh, in the first or second time of asking, she could have lived out a, um, a, a very comfortable life. Mary would have been disinherited, but she still, well, she would have been not dis- disinherited as such, but she would not never become a queen. But she still, I imagine, would have been given a title, given a nice marriage and lived out a very n- nice life. Mm-hmm. Uh, And the obvious comparison to make here is with Anne of Cleves, who you've already mentioned as your as your personal fave. So do you want to sort of maybe sort of compare the two, the two different reactions to being rejected by Henry?
0: Well, I think you I think you couldn't really. uh, Catherine Catherine was experiencing it for the first time Anne had Catherine's. Um, experience to look at and to learn from, you know, so um, Anne was able to recognize very early that she was not going to win this battle. And I don't think that Catherine knew that, you know, even until the end. But something that I would like to talk, I would like to hear your opinion about as well, is, you know, I feel like until the very end, Catherine didn't blame Henry. She blamed all of his advisors, the people who were telling him this and Anne Boleyn and Woolsey and all the different people. Um, she, you know, her the last letter to him that says, you know, this above all else, I, you know, my eyes desire to see you before anything else in, in her letter on her deathbed that she wrote to him. And, you know, even if that's not completely 100% true, I, it does seem like she she didn't, she was almost blind to him and his faults. She I think that's something that can happen when you marry somebody. Um, I've been married for 10 years. And you know, I still see my husband as the 26 year old guy he was when I met him. And hopefully he still sees me as the 20 something that, that I was when he met me. Um, but you know, I, I think you can after you're with somebody for that long, you can be blinded to their faults and to the changes that have happened to them. And it's easier for from a from your for yourself from a psychological perspective to to blame somebody else and i think that she blamed you know, the his advisors and until the end. And I, I think Anne was able to look at things without that emotional baggage, and just look at things much more pragmatically and and see, okay, I'm this is how this is, and I'm not gonna win this one. Um, so I think it made it a lot easier for her emotionally, and, and she had less to, to lose, really. But I think also the Anne example does show that Henry could be very generous, if he got his way, like if you didn't challenge him, he he was fine. It was her op- that drove him so crazy so i'm interested to hear what you think about how you know how she felt about him until the end and and what may have been different
1: well i think also anna cleves she had the example of catherine but i think almost more importantly she had the example of anne boleyn Mm. um to uh kind of bear both but you know the, the example of catherine shows that henry was not above kind of neglecting his wife to death whereas Anne Boleyn showed he had no objection yeah. to killing his wife to death
0: right.
1: I'm always slightly, I'm always very, very suspicious when people you see in the sources, people will say, oh these people weren't blaming the king, they were blaming advisors because it's kind of, it's the intelligent you see this with the Peasants' Revolt, you see it in the Russian Revolution, you see it all through history, when you have a monarch Everyone's always blaming the advisors and never the monarch. Right. And so, because it's the way out, you know, you want mm-hmm. to give... If you want the king to do something, you you don't say, I think you made this terrible decision. I think you are killing us all. Right. You say, you're great. You're great. You're really great. You're, <laughs> like, God great. Yeah. But... Uh, it's it's your advisor. It's well. Then Woolsey. that's what, the, what all of the I rebellions, actually,
0: like the pe- the peasant or the pilgrimage of grace wasn't against Henry. It was against the Protestant advisors who were you know advising him and stuff. So yeah. I yeah I get that.
1: But uh, having said all of that, uh, I on this occasion, I so you, usually I'm very suspicious of that. But on this occasion, I think you're right, and I think Catherine seems to be someone who was very quick to blame, um, and she was very quick to blame people who weren't the real people to blame you see this you see this with the fact that she got on with none until um Chapuis came along as as the imperial ambassador but you see with all the other amb- ambassadors that came uh right the way back t- to when she first married arthur she hated them all she thought they were all terrible people who were just getting in her way uh and she did reserve some Um, sharp words for her father as well. Mm -hmm. But she tended to blame them for her problems. And then you see this, again, even before the whole divorce problem started, you get this problem with, she never got on with Woolsey. And I think with Woolsey it was more of um, a power struggle because Woolsey sort of represented the pro-France faction and Catherine was the head of the pro-Spain, pro-Empire faction. And so I think she was very quick to blame generally people who weren't who it was easier for her to blame because I think it's very difficult for her to blame Henry mm. um, a man whom she I think you can say that she, she loved him in a um, in, in a sort of renaissance medieval, early modern sense rather than kind of the more modern sense um, I think she couldn't believe that a, a king would treat a queen this way um, and you see it again with Henry he, he has these moments he he like he loved to portray himself as this big virile, masculine man I don't know why I'm really puffing my chest out <laughs> and clenching my fists here because no one can see it but maybe you can hear it in my voice yeah she yeah he, he loved to be this man of action this sporting man this Renaissance prince and yet you read the sources and again you can't b- believe everything you read but you see this man browbeat by these two you know incredibly forceful, strong women, very very different women, Catherine and, and Damberlyn, but he can't really compete with them. And because he's kind of in enthralled them both and I think intimidated by them both, he he comes across sometimes as very as very weak. And so it's sort of you can see I can see why Catherine would think that Henry was being misled because he often comes across as being someone who didn't who who could be persuaded of things. Mm-hmm. And and so I think I think that that will be that'll be my answer to the question before I spend another 5 minutes rambling.
0: It's <laughs> interesting. We we agree on quite a lot about her, don't we?
1: I think to be honest there's quite unlike with Anne Boleyn, I think there is quite a historical consensus nowadays on Catherine. Mm. I think the the modern trend, without wanting to get too deep into historiography, because I know that bores people, and it sure did bore me when I studied history, but you don't have, we're now in this, you, know, you don't have this uh, big debate over her. I think you now definitely see the, the, fem- what I call the feminist school uh, of sort of Historical, at least historical commentary, if not like true nerdy academic historical discourse, which was sort of talking about this about 10 15 years ago, as you know, popular history is about usually about 10 years behind. Yeah, Um, you have we now like to see, I think it's gone almost too far sometimes, in that we like to see everything that the queen does or the woman does as this positive. No strong thing, and so even when they make a bad decision, we sort of praise it and say that was a great decision there. It was just that she was thwarted by the man, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and and so and, and. But I think we're in this school now where where we we're we're kind of recognizing that this view of Catherine the victim is not really satisfactory. Yeah,
0: just
1: just thinking. Thinking of her as the classic jilted woman, yeah, um, because it's such an easy—it's a really easy caricature. It's so—it's so ubiquitous in culture to have you know the wronged woman by you know the husband, the powerful husband and his mistress. It's such an easy thing to put in a box and say this is what happened. And I think now the general consensus amongst people who've Who've done, you know, who d- like you and I have spent a lot of time reading about this, and and the people who spent a lot of time writing about it is this more complete, holistic view of Catherine, mm-hmm. which sees her as, and then you start to pick everything out and you say, oh, actually, you know, she was pretty extraordinary.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. She was a pretty well. You know, it's it's easy with history to want to look back and put things in easy to understand. box. It's easy with anything. It's what we want to do is take something and put it in the box that we know. And we know the the narrative of the wronged, jilted woman. And we also know the narrative of the really strong woman. And, you know, nobody fits any one box or any two boxes perfectly. You know, we're all a spectrum. And uh, from 500 years later, it it's easy to go back and say, okay, well, this is the narrative. But I think you're right. More and more people now are seeing it as there's a spectrum,
1: yeah, and and it's yeah, it's completely wrong to say you know. There's a question I have not asked, which I've heard asked before, which is, you know is was Catherine of Aragon a feminist? Mm-hmm. And I, I always say you can't really yeah. use that word feminism. Yeah. I don't I think you can even start to use that word until about the twentieth century because it's 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 a word that she would not have understood. Mm-hmm. It's a concept she would not have understood. Um, the broad sentiments of it, maybe. Mm-hmm. but like the note you know the notion of of female equality is something completely, you know as we would understand it and um, which we even now don't have is is something completely foreign so you, you have to I am um, I can't remember who said this but there's a, a famous quote that I've seen in a few books now which is you know the the past is a foreign country they do things differently there
0: mm-hmm. yeah
1: uh, and something a lot of my my teachers have always said to me is you can't think of these people as like you
0: because they're not. No. They
1: thought completely differently. They are it's almost like talking about a different species to a certain degree. You know, they are all human. Um they all had, you know, two legs, two two arms, um and we would recognise them and probably could have a conversation with them. Although I think they'd think we talked kinda weird. (laughs) And dressed kinda weird. Yeah. But the it's just like it's a foreign country. It's a completely foreign mindset. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: and I think with that, because I've officially run out of things to say. I uh, I think I think we'll uh, we'll wrap it up there. Well, I'd like to thank you very much for coming on for well, being yeah. my first ever interviewee.
0: Thank and... you for coming on for me too, because I'm going to put this out to my listeners. So this is this is great. I, I um I love your show. You know, I, I think I first emailed you about a year and a half ago when it was still you were still somewhere in the 1300s. I I think, and uh, I love your show, and so I'm I'm really happy that we're doing something together finally.
1: Cool. So do you want to for your listeners quickly? Oh, sorry, for my listeners, do you want to quickly say where they can find you in your what three podcasts now?
0: No, I just have two. I just have two. So um, the Renaissance English History Podcast is my main podcast, and that's englandcast, E-N-G-L-A-N-D, englandcast.com. And then I just started this watching the Tudors because I am shamelessly capitalizing on the popularity of the Tudors. So every week or every couple of weeks, my husband, who knows nothing about the Tudors at all, he and I watch an episode of the Tudors, and then I talk about what was true, and he asks me questions about what was true and what wasn't true. And that's also on the englandcast.com site. As well, so you can get all the links and everything there. So cool. How and about so for you, the yeah. Tell me about where to find you then.
1: For now, I only have the one. I'm not as prolific as Heather. I did the the Queens of England podcast. It's my one and only. It's my baby. Uh, got the website, which is www.queensofenglandpodcast.com. Don't know why I stumbled on that. Uh, I'm also you know all over social medias. Uh, if you just type Queens of England podcast into Facebook and Twitter, you'll find me there. Uh, I'm currently ploughing through the Tudors. Uh, just done four episodes on Catherine and after this I'm about to do I'd say maybe because I'm supposed to only do three on Catherine and then st- spend an entire episode really just covering about 1529 to about 1533 mm. um, because you know I never know how much it's going to be but I think it's going to be just be three on Anne uh, and then I'm going to keep the very late 17th century
0: exciting well thank you so much for this um, it's been so fun to talk to you
1: thank you very much and uh, we'll definitely try and do this again soon
0: hey James that was so much fun thank you I really enjoyed that so for more information on James's podcast on the Alison Weir book anything like that go to englandcast.com and there's show notes for this episode thanks so much and I will talk with you again soon bye bye
1: Blow northern wind a scent may be sweating Blow northern wind Blau, blau, ich hotte Burd in Baure bricht, wat so liss em liss